We're going to continue the message that I began last week. So if you'll open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. And I'm happy that we, that we are able to return to this part of the scriptures today. Because here we find the grand purpose for us meeting in this building this morning. We are here to talk about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And to look into the scriptures and to see what God has to say about the greatest need that every person has. I'm reminded of Charles Spurgeon, that great English Baptist preacher. In fact, Spurgeon was considered to be the most prolific preacher and the best preacher, the greatest preacher since the time of the apostles. One of the things he said about preaching was that whenever he chose his text, no matter where it was, he got as fast as he could to the cross. That was the most important thing for him to talk about. Now, if you talk to other people, you'll find that there are various important issues that they think are more important than any others. Our government tells us that the economy and poverty and world peace, a strong military, environmental awareness, health care package, an educational system, energy policy, those kinds of things are the most important needs that we face in our country today. And if you go to many of our churches, you'll find that they're dealing with a social gospel and they're concerned with curing other ills like divorce and how to raise children, to deal with chemical dependency and homelessness and other issues such as those. But all of the problems that exist in the world, whether we're talking about governmentally or socially, mentally, physically, all problems are tied to one chief problem, And that is the problem of the sinful, fallen nature of human beings. The nature, fallen nature of the heart of man. And that's what dooms us to an unending cycle of disappointment and defeat. And our attempts to cure that problem always start in the wrong place. We try to take what is inherently defiled and corrupt and try to bring out of that something that is wholesome, clean, and good. Now, in one of Job's insightful responses to his miserable comforters, he said, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Not one. And so here is the great problem that has to be the first point of attack. And that is we are unclean. All of us are defiled. All of us are sinners. And we have to be changed from the sinful creatures that we are into creatures that have a nature that's like God. And the Bible was written to tell us how that can be done. The Bible tells us about Jesus and what he did to release us from the bondage of this vile body of sin that we're in. He tells us how, or the Bible tells us how that we can receive a glorified body, a glorious body like that of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the way we receive it is not in the way that we had imagined. And it's not the way that we would have devised for it to take place. And that is our human understanding pitted against God's understanding about the way that should be done. Now in this passage, this is what we see. Human wisdom pitted against God's wisdom. Peter's wisdom pitted against that of the Lord Jesus Christ who absolutely knew what he must do in order to save people from their sins. Now there is a way that seems right to a man. That's what the book of Proverbs says. There is a way that seems right to us, but the Bible says that way is the way of death. God's way is a way of life. 
But strangely, the way that we reach life is through death. The way that we reach eternal life is not through our death, but through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Now you might say, well, I don't think that's quite right because in order to get to heaven, the thing that you have to do is to die. You die and you go to heaven. And that's your wisdom pitted against God's wisdom because you do not gain eternal life through your death. You gain eternal life in this life while you're still living. And that's when you place your faith in the atoning, eternal sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. And if you've not done that, then the Bible teaches that you'll not only suffer the death, physical death, but you'll also suffer eternal death as well. So we open up the pages of the Bible and we find the marvelous provision of God that is there. Uh, The Bible tells us how we can be saved. We open to learn about Jesus. The Bible speaks of his eternality. It tells us about his deity, about his virgin birth. And we concentrate on that at this particular time, on the incarnation of Christ. That's a concentration. We may study his baptism or we talk about the compassion of Christ. We talk about all the doctrines that Jesus taught. But the most vitally important part of the entire story of Jesus is what happened at the cross. The most needful thing for all of mankind is the suffering and death of Jesus on the cross. Now we see it in this passage as Jesus begins to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem to suffer and die. Now if you didn't do this last week... When we read the scriptures this week, and you see this again, underline the word must, because that is the divine imperative. That is the crucial thing for the salvation of your souls. The cross of Christ is the divine must. And that's why I'm here to preach to you about the cross today. Now, if you look at Matthew 16, stand with me, please, as we read God's word. Matthew 16, verse number 21 It says, from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be done unto thee. But he turned and said unto Peter, get thee behind me, Satan, thou art an offense unto me. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Father, thank you for your word. Help us to see the truth in this passage today. Help us to see Jesus lifted up on the cross, the divine must, the imperative for the salvation of our souls. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, our attention is drawn once again today uh, to this passage of Scripture. And at first, as we read this, it seems like the worst tragedy that the world has ever seen. There seems to be a prediction here of the worst thing that could ever happen. Now, Jesus said these things in this particular passage to write the misunderstandings of the purpose of his incarnation, the real purpose that he came into the world. He said to his disciples, I must go to Jerusalem, I must suffer many things, I must be killed. Now, let me just refresh your memory a little bit about our our message from last week. We talked about this divine must of Jesus, the imperative, as being the divine plan of God. 
that this is the plan that God put in place from the foundation of the world. When he created this world, he created it with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ in mind. And we think about that, our sovereign God, how bizarre it is that God should create the world knowing that when he created man, that he would fall from his innocence that he would need to be redeemed from his sinful condition, that something that God must do himself to right the wrong would have to take place. And we wonder, why is it that God created man in the first place? Couldn't God have created man so that he would never fall, so that he would never need to be redeemed, so it would never have to be a salvation? Couldn't God have done that? And we would have to say, absolutely, God could have done that. And we wonder, why would he create a world that would require his personal intervention, that would require the incarnation of his own son, that would require him to come to this earth to suffer and die for sins? Why would God ever put in place a plan like that? Now, in our Sunday morning forum class, I tell our students that there are some things that you just don't know the answers to. There's some things that you can't answer. Some questions don't have answers, at least ones that we can understand. And I think this is what prompted Paul to write that great doxology in Romans 11.33, where he said, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. So as I look at the scriptures, I don't know the why of this. I don't know the why of God's divine purpose. I don't really understand what God had in mind that caused him to devise a plan of salvation that operates like this. But I do know this, that the Bible says that it was God's purpose from the very beginning. Before he ever created the world, God had this plan in mind. He had people in mind. He had salvation in mind. And I praise him for this, that he had me in mind. And he sent Jesus into the world to deliver me from this bondage of sin that I was in and make it possible for me to live in the life of Jesus Christ. And his eternal plan was brought about through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. I don't understand that, but I preach it because that's what the Bible says. Now, I encourage you, if you didn't get to hear the message last night, go back, refresh your mind, or last week rather, refresh your minds on the scriptures that I gave then and understand this very clearly, that the death of Jesus on the cross was not an unplanned tragedy. It wasn't a tragedy at all. It wasn't an accident. His life was not taken from him. But Jesus Christ surrendered his life freely for the salvation of those that would believe in him. Now, Christ's death was the satisfaction of divine justice. The holy and righteous God had to do something with sin, and there was no other way than this that would work. There's no way any person will be saved. There's no way that God's wrath against sin can be appeased except this way. And that is that Christ died to pay the penalty of all the sins that we've committed against God. And so Christ took upon himself the wrath of God against us. He took that himself, and that's why he had to go to Jerusalem to suffer and die. Now today I'd like us to look a little bit further into Peter's problem with the passion. Now we've discussed the divine purpose, and now we need to take a few minutes to look and see why was Peter really so opposed to the death of Christ? 
Now, God in his infinite wisdom and his divine plan said this is the way it must be. But Peter didn't look at it that way. But rather, Peter looked at it through the human perspective. Peter looked at it through the eyes of man. Now, look at it in verse 22. Here we see Peter's action. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be done unto thee. Now, I would dare say that there's none of us that would have been in Peter's position that would have done anything different than he did. I think if we had been there, we would have given the exact same response that Peter gave. I mean, we stand back and we take a bird's eye view of the ministry of Jesus Christ and we look at all the good works that he did, all the things that he did for people, and we think that there is no way that such a good man, such a compassionate man, such a loving man, such a concerned man, such a friendly man, there is no way that someone like that should have been taken and cruelly crucified. Now, if we just think about the healing ministry... Uh, and we consider how that he personally obliterated disease in, in all the coast of Israel, there's no way that it makes sense to us that God would take away the only hope that these people had of healing. Why would God permit the murder of the only one who could help these people? And when we begin to think like that, I, I, I think we start to see the death of Christ like an act of martyrdom. People want to see Jesus as Superman, that he has stood for truth, justice, and the American way, that his greatest contribution to mankind was his sincere desire for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so Jesus becomes another George Washington. He's another Mahatma Gandhi, or as some would think of Nelson Mandela or somebody else that tried to relieve the oppression of mankind. And that view of Jesus makes the prediction of his death simply an inevitable outcome. I mean, you look at him, what he did, his teachings angered his enemies. You could expect that if you endangered the livelihood of those religious leaders, of the priest, and you tried to ruin their influence, you chucked their whole system by which they are in control of the people. And so you expect their hostility, and you would expect that nothing less than this would happen. Somebody's going to try and kill him. And then if you're trying to undermine the authority of Rome and the people want you to be the king instead of Caesar, well, that looks like rebellion. It looks like an uprising. And so what's the Roman government going to do? Again, the inevitable outcome is that Rome will put down rebellion. And so the death of Christ just becomes the logical outcome of outward circumstances. Well, if that's true, then why must Jesus go to Jerusalem? Why didn't Jesus do everything that he could to avoid going to Jerusalem? Why would he go anywhere but where there was the greatest place or greatest threat to his life? Well, Peter asked Jesus to do this, stay away from Jerusalem. But if we settle on the answer alone that it's just the inevitable outcome, this is what will happen if you go, Jesus. We're only marginally scratching the surface of what Peter really thought about the crucifixion. Now, I do want to remind you of this, and we're going to get into it as we get into the next uh, passage of Scripture when we start to study it, that the disciples at this point really didn't know about the crucifixion. Now, Jesus said that he was going to die, but he hasn't said anything yet at all about it being a crucifixion. So they're not really thinking of the cross. Now, we're injecting that here because we see it now and we think about it now. So 
what does Peter have in his mind? What is really deeper in his mind when he says to Jesus, Be it far from you, Lord, it shall not be done unto you. Well, I think that we would have to look at it this way, that the cross is failure. The human perspective says the cross is failure. The human perspective says that the cross is fatal to the establishment of God's kingdom. As I've discussed with you many times, the prevailing attitude of the Jewish people and of the disciples was that when the Messiah did come, that immediately the kingdom would be established. We read passages of Scripture in the Old Testament, but we have this one in Revelation chapter 19 where it says that the king will come from heaven, and this is what they expected, the king will come from heaven, he'll ride on a white horse, he'll come to this earth with vengeance, and with righteousness he judges and makes war. That it will be his intent to come and destroy all of his enemies. Now, the earliest prophecy that we have of the coming kingdom takes us all the way back into the book of Genesis. And there we find a man by the name of Enoch. Now, the prophecy is not actually in the Old Testament, but it's told to us in the book of Jude. And Jude wrote about it. He said, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And as I said, there are many prophecies in the Old Testament that reflect that same prophecy that, that Enoch gave. You have other prophecies in the Old Testament that said that when the Messiah comes, he will be like a stone that's cut out of the mountain. And he'll come down from the mountain with such force, rolling down that mountain with such force that he'll crush all of his enemies beneath him. And so as we read in Revelation 19, the blood on the garments of this great king will not be any other than those than the blood of, or the blood of his enemies. But what Jesus is saying in this passage of Scripture does not appear to be a victorious outcome. He says here, and we learn this as we go through this, that the blood that stains his garments is his own. This is not the blood of his enemies, not the blood of others, as we find in Revelation 19. But when Jesus went to the cross, he was beaten into a bloody mess. He was crucified on that cross. The blood flowed down. The blood stains that were on him were his own, not the blood of his enemies. And so the disciples thinking about this and others thinking about this, how can that fit with Old Testament prophecy? The king is killed, then that means that he snatched away before the kingdom can ever begin. The righteous king is defeated. He has no ability to bring the kingdom. And that's what's going through Peter's mind. That's going through the disciples' mind. They had great difficulty understanding how that he could be the Messiah when he did not fit their religious education. They hadn't heard about all this. They didn't know about all this. So man's wisdom says these things don't add up. We look at the life of Jesus, and he's supposed to be the great king that's coming, and yet he never lashes out against an enemy. He never hurt anybody. He never tried to strike anybody dead when they called him a blasphemer, when they said that he works under the power of Satan. Jesus didn't raise his hand against them. 
And now they come to the final straw. Here is Jesus telling them, I'm going to be killed. So you mean he's going to die like a criminal? Well, if that's so, then all hope for the kingdom is lost. And so no wonder that Peter braved to rebuke Jesus. If Peter was thoroughly convinced that there was no ruse in his claims, then why wouldn't he take Jesus aside and say to him, Lord, this can't happen to you. This shall not happen. Jesus said, I must. And Peter said, no, you must not. Because Jesus can't die. And at the same time, bring in the kingdom. It just does not work. But that's man's wisdom. And it's man's wisdom pitted against God's wisdom as it usually is. The cross of Christ is foolishness to us. You remember how the Apostle Paul battled that all of the time in his ministry? Always telling the people, preaching about the foolishness of the cross? How could he possibly explain that to anybody who's not been regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God? The natural man doesn't see that. He doesn't understand it. The cross makes no sense. And do you know this, that even after you're saved, that much of what God does doesn't make sense? You ever question God about your personal economy? You ever question God about trials that come into your life? You ever wonder why the guy next to you that is not a Christian kept his job and you lost yours? Your plan is not God's plan. And if you had your way, you would say, that's not the way it's going to be. I'll do things my way. And you'd stop God from doing what he does. Now, you think what would have happened if Peter had his way? What if he was able to stop the cross? He said, Lord, it shall not be done to you. But what would happen? Peter, Peter didn't know what God knows. Peter didn't know what God was up to. He doesn't see what God sees. And this happens to you when you become disappointed with God's plan for your life. And you have to remember, you can't see around the bend in the road ahead. You don't know where God's going to lead you. Now, you can see a few feet in front of you sometimes, but you can't see that around that corner. You can't see over the hill. You can't see where God's going to take you. And so your life right now may look like failure. Just like the cross looked like failure to these disciples. It may look like failure right now, but what we have to do is keep our eyes on God and let him direct our paths. Don't question where God is leading. At some point, the reason for every trial, and I'm talking to Christians now, the reason for every trial will become clear. It may not be in the next few hours. It might not be in the next few days. And I can attest to it in my own life that sometimes you don't even know what he's doing for the next few years. But what you have to do is stay the course and believe that God is going to lead you to the best place possible for your life. So if you stop now and you're unwilling to follow his plan, be sure of this, disaster will follow. So Peter was determined that Jesus would not go to the cross. And if he did, there's danger for the entire world in that. Because one change in God's plan brings down the wisdom of God. Salvation depends on the cross. He did not understand the must of Jesus. So I think that's the first issue that we have to look at. Peter's human perspective, he just looked at it through the wrong eyes. 
The cross to him means failure to the kingdom. But do you know one key ingredient that Peter missed? Now, he focused on suffering and death. He heard Jesus say, suffer. That doesn't match. That doesn't work in the plan. He heard him say, kill. That doesn't work in the plan. That, that can't happen. And he missed the next part. Jesus said, and be raised again the third day. Now, do you know what that tells us? It tells us that the ignominious cross is the pathway to the glory of God. The cruelty of the suffering and the death of Jesus was to be overcome by the power of the resurrection. Without death, without the death of Christ on the cross, the chief enemy of man cannot be defeated. Now, Peter's view of the kingdom is that the enemy to be defeated is Rome. Israel must be restored to the glory days of the kingdom. But Jesus has a different picture in mind. The worst enemy of God is not the people of any nation or of any earthly kingdom. Here's what God says in the book of Psalms. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. God says in Psalm 9, The wicked shall be turned into hell and all nations that forget God. So the nations of the world are not a problem for Christ. The greatest enemy is not some swarming horde of invading armies. The worst enemy is death. And the only way for death to be defeated is for the Son of God to go to the cross and die and then under his own power arise from the grave. So God just laughs at death. He says, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? So do you see this? Man says the cross is failure. But God says that the death of the Son of God leads to triumph, which is the victory of our souls over our death. Christ arose from the dead so that we can live. Now, further, Peter's objection reflects the human perspective. And this might surprise you a little bit that Peter has in his mind that people are not worth saving. People are not worth saving. Now, it seems like that we never think this way, at least this way, that we are not worth saving. We don't think that way. But we certainly do think that there are other people that are not worth saving. I mean, would you think that it makes sense to exchange the life of a man like Jesus for somebody like us? Does it make sense to you that the best of all men that ever lived would say that he would give his life to die for someone who was a murderer? Or that the best man who ever lived should exchange his life for one who is a liar? Or to exchange his life for an adulterer? Most of us never see ourselves that way. Now, sometimes people will complain that if God saves anybody, then he must save all. And I never wonder why God doesn't save everybody. I always wonder why he saved anybody. When we take the right kind of look into our own lives and really give the right kind of introspection that we should give, then it, we get lost in the wonder and amazement of this, that Jesus Christ would come to die for anybody. I'd be the last to say that I'm worthy for Christ to die for me. Now, I did hear a preacher one time, I was watching, actually he's a very popular preacher on television, 
that he held out his hands like this. And he said, Jesus came to die for me because I'm valuable. I am somebody. And I hope that he didn't mean that he was somebody in himself because there's none of us that's anybody. All of us together are a bunch of nobodies. Christ didn't come to die for us because of what we are. He came to die for us for what we could become, what he could make us into. So there's no value in us. He came to die for us so that he could make us trophies of his grace. He came to die for us so that he could put his spirit within us and then we would live for him and we would worship him, we would glorify him in this life and also in the world to come. And so we're not saved for our sake, we're saved for Christ's sake. But the human perspective looks at it wrongly. It says either we are worth saving or it says we are not worth saving. And strangely enough, both of those answers are wrong until you look at it through the eyes of the Savior who knew what we could become. So Peter said to Jesus, Lord, save yourself. Don't go to the cross. Don't die. It's not worth it to die for those that hate you. Now, can you think about that for just a minute? It's not worth it, Peter's thinking, for you to die for people that hate you. And what Peter missed in all of that is that all of us hated him. Jesus came to die for all of us that would put our faith in him. All of us hated him. We all put him on the cross. And so Peter misses that, that that Jesus was going to die for this mighty preacher called Peter as much as he was for this puny preacher standing in this pulpit. I need the death of Jesus Christ, and Peter needed the death of Christ, and everyone here needs his death. Well, there's one other thought that I want to give you today as we look at the passage, and thirdly, is the satanic perversion. Verse 23 says, But he turned, Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get thee behind me, Satan, thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Now there, Jesus is simply saying, Peter, you're thinking like a man. You don't think like God. And what a surprising answer that Jesus gave to Peter's rebuke. He turned to him, and he addressed him as Satan. Now, if you slide back up the page to verse number 16, this is the same man that boldly said to Jesus, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And remember, Jesus commended him for that. He said, You're blessed, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. And now, seven verses later, Peter is transformed to, from commendation to condemnation. Now, thankfully, we're not talking about the condemnation of his soul, but it's a condemnation that shows that any doctrine that is against the doctrine of Christ is satanic in origin. Now, you pick any doctrine that you want to pick. If it crosses what the Bible says, if it's against the Holy Scriptures, then it has his origin with Satan. Now, if it didn't come from God, it can only have one other place that it can come from. It must come from the devil. It's the doctrine of devils. So why did Jesus call Peter Satan? Well, there are some that argue that what happened was that Satan came in and he possessed Peter's body. But I don't think that can happen. I don't believe that the devil has the power to possess a Christian. You never have to worry about being demon-possessed. 
But I don't think that it means that Satan does not have strong influence over the minds of Christian, Christians. That Satan can influence us to do the wrong thing. Because I surely can't say, when I see Christians with bitterness and with hatefulness and with gossip and with slander that comes out of their mouths, I'm not going to say, well, that must be a product of God's Holy Spirit. I know better than that. That has to be something that comes from Satan. And I'm well aware of this, that every one of us is capable out of the sin that's in our own heart to commit every sin imaginable. We have that ability in our own heart. We don't need Satan's help to do it. But certainly Satan is there always stirring up that pot, trying to get us to sin against God. He works on us. And if he didn't work on us, then we wouldn't have the warnings in Scripture that said, for you need to beware of the wiles of the devil. You need to watch out for him. We're not going to be warned about the roaring lion who seeks whom he may devour if there's no possibility that he can hurt us. So certainly he does. And that's what Satan did. He was the one who was there who stirred up this cesspool of sin that was in Peter's heart and he caused him to rebuke Jesus. And I know that's the case because Jesus says that it is. Now, notice something that really also seems strange in Satan's plan. And that is that Satan is trying here to throw up a roadblock to the cross. That's not what you would think, is it? I mean, we would think, well, Satan's goal, his primary goal, is to get Jesus to the cross to kill him. But do you know this, that Satan was trying to get Jesus to avoid the cross? Why? Because the cross is the crushing of Satan's head. Now think back to what I said about death a moment ago. The Bible says that Satan is the destroyer. Satan is the one, the word of God says, has the power of death. Hebrews says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself, talking about Jesus, took part of the same, that he through death might destroy him that had the power of death, That is the devil. So the scripture says that the cross is the place where death is destroyed. The one that has the power of death is the devil. And to destroy death, the devil has to go out with it. And so the cross became the plan of God from the foundation of the world. Because if you go back and you remember what's said in the book of Genesis, that there it said, God said to Satan in the Garden of Eden that one day... He would crush him. Now the devil's had free reign for a long, long time. But God said it's not always going to be that way. We read this in Revelation 13 a moment ago when people were saying, Who can make war with the beast? And the Antichrist is given the power of the devil to do what he does. And people say, Who can make war with him? And God stands up and says, I can make war with him. Because I've promised to crush his head, and that's what he's going to do. And so in Genesis 3.15, God said the seed of the woman would be bruised, but he would rise up and he would crush the head of the serpent. And you're going to hear more about that on that Christmas sermon on the, on the uh, uh, 23rd in a couple of weeks. But the Bible says he would, rush, he would rise up and crush the head of the serpent. That's a prophecy about Christ. The seed of the woman is, is Jesus And Satan would be able to bruise his heel. And that speaks of the sin and the death of the cross. But Satan could not hold him down. The Son of God would rise from the dead and he would put his foot on the head of the serpent and crush him 
to death. Now, Satan remembers what God said. For thousands of years, Satan has remembered what God said. So what do you think Satan wanted to do? He wanted to stop the cross. I mean, what he would rather have, actually, is a live Jesus. He'd rather have a martyred Jesus. What he does not want is a resurrected Jesus. Now, you look through the scriptures, and we've studied some of this already. You'll find that Satan tried to stop the cross, I think, here in Peter's rebuke. I think that he wanted to stop it way back in Matthew chapter 4 when Satan offered Jesus the kingdoms of the world. If Jesus had taken the offer of Satan then, there would have been no cross. I think that he wanted to stop it when the people cried out for Jesus to become their king. And that was right after that he fed the 5,000. They, they wanted Jesus to become king right then. That's Satan influencing them. Get him not to go to the cross, accept the crown right now. And then I think of that night when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And there he was, about ready to drink the cup of death that God had for him at the cross. And as Jesus was praying there, he prayed for the strength that he would be able to be sustained in order to get to the cross. The Bible says he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. He did not want to die in the garden. And so he prayed for the strength to drink that cup of death that was prepared for him. Now, you think about how easy it would have been for something to go wrong in the plan. What if the mob gets out of hand and someone comes along and instead of Jesus going to the cross, they're so angry that they shoot an arrow and pierce him through? Or what if someone picks up a spear and throws it at him and kills him in that way and Jesus doesn't go to the cross? Do you know what Jesus was praying for? No interruptions. Don't let anything interfere with the divine plan. While at the same time, Satan was trying to stop it in any way that he could. Now, this I hadn't really intended this to be part of my message, but the thought strikes me right now as I'm thinking about it, that us sitting right here in this room today, thinking about the cross and thinking how strange it was for this to happen that way, think about how Jesus was so determined to do this that he wasn't going to let anything stop it, that he loved us so much that as much pain and suffering as it would bring upon him, the worst that the world has ever seen, that it would bring hell upon him. And yet he was willing to die for us. An astounding realization of what Jesus did at the cross. So the cross meant, to Satan, the cross meant the prophecy was sure for its fulfillment. His head will be crushed. Well, as we know, Satan couldn't stop the cross. We're here today because he couldn't stop the cross. But more importantly, we're here today because he couldn't stop the resurrection. Now, that was his next plan, I think. Uh, he tried it in different ways. And, you know, you have to think sometimes that Satan is kind of crazy about the way he goes about things. He's not thinking straight, but he deceives himself. So he had the tomb sealed and he had a guard posted at it. But all that did was to prove how much more powerful that Jesus really is because that mattered not at all. Jesus came out of the tomb. Now finally, we see in this passage the stone of stumbling. Jesus said, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou art an offense unto me. The word offense is the Greek word scandalon, same word from which we get scandal. It has another interesting meaning, though. It also means a, a stumbling block. 
And so Jesus says to Peter, you are a stumbling block to the plans of God. Now, isn't that a remarkable contrast? Because you have people that look at verse number 18 in Matthew 16, and they say, well, there's a verse that says that Jesus intended to build his church upon Peter, that Peter is the rock, and so therefore Peter is the first pope. But here we see that Jesus says to Peter, you are a what? You are a scandal. You are a stumbling block to the plan of the cross. If you have your way, the church of the living God will never get started. If you have your way, the plan of God tumbles to the ground. The church will never be built. It kind of changes the perspective on Peter that he was the first pope that the church was built on when he's the very first one who tried to stop it from being built. Well, it just reminds us again that any doctrine that crosses the divine scriptures is a doctrine of Satan. So Jesus said to him, Thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Now today, you'll hear all sorts of Tommy Rot doctrines that are taught. Turn on your television, turn it on Sunday morning, and you might have even done that today, I don't know, and you'll hear doctrines of men. You'll hear the wisdom of men being taught from a variety of sources. Joel Osteen will smile at you, and he'll say, God wants you to be wealthy. God doesn't want you to suffer. God doesn't, God doesn't want you to have any pain in your life, no turmoil. God wants everything to go your way. You are favored by God as if that's the thing that brings God's favor. Why does he say those things? Why do preachers stand in pulpits and promise you everything under the sun that you can have if you'll just become a Christian? Why do they say that? They say it because that's the wisdom of men. That's the way they think things ought to operate. But Joel Osteen, folks, is Peter on his worst day. He's a stumbling block to the cause of Jesus Christ. He is an offense with his doctrine because it is the doctrine of Satan. Now, there are people who say, well, preacher, you're awful mean. Why do you say things like that? Why are you so mean? One commentator said, this is the problem with preaching. Nobody is willing to stand up and call out Satan to his face. When we see him, we must confront him. The doctrines of Satan stand in the way of the salvation of sinners. So what do you find preachers doing today? Pushing the cross out of the way. Get rid of the cross. Don't talk about the blood. Don't speak of sacrifice. Don't talk about the atonement because they have a better plan. You know what the better plan of preachers is today? The better plan today is for Jesus to stay in the Galilean ministry. Don't go to the cross, stay in the Galilean ministry, because if you do that, then people have everything that they want. They have their health, they have their wealth, they get fed, and that's the gospel that's being preached today. Jesus, stay in Galilee. Don't go to the cross. But Jesus has bigger things on his mind. He's working according to God's eternal purpose. He always has been and he always will be. And that's what I want you to see as we close today. You have to come all the way to Jesus. And that means more than coming to him as a healer who is going to give you everything that you desire, what you think the world owes you. It's more than coming to Jesus as a miracle worker because there is no miracle that will ever save your soul except the miracle of the divine new birth. You have to come all the way to the death of Jesus. You must come to him 
on the cross and you must come to him in the resurrection. And Jesus would not stop any of that from happening for a moment. And so when he went to the cross, he went there with you on his mind. He went to reconcile you to God. He went to make you a trophy of God's grace. And so we don't ever think of the cross as a great tragedy. We don't come here to mourn Jesus on the cross. We don't set up a a funeral beer in the church because Jesus died on the cross. This is not a sad thing to us. This is the triumph of our faith, the triumph of our salvation in Jesus Christ. So what we do is we rejoice in the passion of the Christ. Peter wanted to prevent it. Peter had a problem with it. But I'm telling you, do not have a problem with the death of Jesus Christ. Come to him because that's the only way you can be saved. Jesus said, I must suffer. He said, I must be killed. I must be raised again the third day. And so I want to tell you, don't let Satan keep you away from the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. Don't be afraid to come to him and bow at the foot of that cross and ask for the forgiveness of your sins because that's the only way the divine plan works. Jesus must die, and you must believe he died for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come now into your presence, we're just overwhelmed by this story of Jesus, what happened at the cross. And as he tells his disciples in this passage of Scripture that there is no way out of it, neither did he seek a way out of it. The cross was what he intended. He came to the world for this purpose. And he was absolutely determined that it would happen because he wanted to save people from their sins. Lord, I I pray for any preacher, for any person who would try to shove the cross of Jesus Christ out of the way and say it's not important. Let's find another way. Let's do it some other way. Let's inject man's wisdom into this. I pray for that person because there is no way for anybody to be saved without the cross of Christ. Speak to us today, Lord. We pray that if there's someone here who needs to know you as Savior, their eyes would be opened to the gospel of Christ and they would come in repentance and faith, bowing at the foot of the cross, receiving Christ as Lord and Savior. In his name we pray, amen.